Do you find yourself thinking that you're not good enough or that you're not lovable? Many people hide a dark side that they feel that if others knew their secrets, it would be detrimental to their relationships. It doesn't need to be that way at all. This is where words can't reach. Shedding light on our dark side with your host, Dr. Madeline DeLittle can help. It's time for a frank and open discussion about the things that are bothering us and say what needs to be said. Dr. DeLittle and her guest experts are here to help you understand and provide advice. Now, here is Dr. Madeline DeLittle. Hello and welcome to Voice America Empowerment Channel. My name is Dr. Madeline DeLittle and you're listening to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on Our Dark Side. This is the first of the show in, in this series and we're looking particularly at shame and how what it looks like and how people can overcome it. And uh, today's topic is about different kinds of shame. And my guest is Dr. Pat DeYoung. Uh, Welcome, Pat. Thank you for coming on the show. I want to tell the listeners a little bit about you before we begin. And um, you've been a therapist and a teacher for quite a a few years, since 1996, I gather, uh, working with um, individuals and couples and... uh, particularly within the LGBTQ community. And you were a faculty member of the Toronto Institute for Relational Psychotherapy. Is that correct? Yes. And you're a a social worker and you have a master's in social work and and you're a doctor of philosophy and education from UFT or University of Toronto here in Canada. And not only that, but you're an author of two books, one on relational psychotherapy and the other one, which I have right here in front of me. Um, I wouldn't say it's quite my Bible, but it's up there. It's called Understanding and Treating Chronic Shame, a Relational Neurobiological Approach. And I have to say it's absolutely fabulous book, Pat. So congratulations on it. Thank you. Um, Yeah, published by Routledge. So... um, Here's the $50 billion question, Pat. You know, you've obviously committed a lot of time and energy over the years to this topic on shame. So what is it that motivates you around this around this topic? Yeah. Well, I'd say that <clears throat> I have always been searching for emotional connection, that knowing and being known for real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I have come out of a a history of my own childhood in which I didn't know it at the time, but the lack of that kind of emotional connection um, left me with a chronic shame legacy that I've been struggling with ever since. Uh, Okay. I was able to get myself at some point to therapy and realize, oh, this is possible to actually have emotional connection with another human being where you feel really understood and there's Mm. that getting, that sense of we are here together in that space. Mm. Um, And I find it going forward very much a privilege to be with my clients and my friends and my family in that kind of a space, which I've had to learn. And I think that writing the book Pursuing the question clarified for me over the years of what it was that I was trying to do. And it's been a lot of years figuring that out. Yeah, most people don't 
sort of talk about their shame. It's not something that uh, it, it's spoken over over the dinner table. You know, it's not something that people even really know about. I don't think. And it took you a long time, and and that's really Pat. That's why I want the show to 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 be in this to to, to be on this topic so that. Um, many more people understand what it what is underlying, what is the wellspring of what's going on for them. Mm-hmm. So let's just move then into um, wh- how you see shame. What what is what is shame, and and do you have a definition or absolutely? Okay, yeah, go I for have it. a definition. Um, but I think first that I want to say that the reason people don't talk about shame is because they feel ashamed of their shame, right? That it's oh, yes. something wrong with me that I feel this bad about myself. I do it to myself in some way. Um, it's not something that I can let anybody see um, or know about. It's a reprehensible part of me, even while my shame is about feeling reprehensible, right? Or ugly or disgusting or something like that. And where I want to come from is to kind of undo that definition of shame that it's that belongs to a single person all by themselves and it's their trouble and to recast it as something that which I believe it is is profoundly essentially relational um what, what do you mean if we by start relate? with well yeah. well if we start with the with the feeling that shame is um my definition of what shame is is that it's the experience of one's felt sense of self disintegrating in relation to a dysregulating other. And in its most basic form, then, when we experience shame, it's it's not, first of all, bad self-concept or low self-esteem. It's that visceral, emotional sense of kind of falling apart, of wow. not being okay right here, right now. People talk about feeling vaporized or th- that they just want to disappear and fall through the floor when they feel acutely shamed, or in the more chronic sort of shame sort of setup um, that goes on and on and is kind of hidden away, there's the on and on feeling of there's something wrong with me. Hmm. So that's that's kind of the the basic form that people carry. But then the next thing that I want to say right away is the second part of that definition is the experience of one's felt self, one's felt sense of self disintegrating in relation to a dysregulating other. And that's the key that even in our adult lives, you know, if you're feeling bad and you want to feel better, you go and find somebody to talk to that's going to help you find your way back to your kind of regulated, okay, emotional self. And if you're feeling bad and you're with somebody who's, not understanding, who blames you in some way, who's on some other planet, you feel worse, right? Mm-hmm. And if that's Absolutely. the case for, and if that's the case for us as grown-ups, how much more is that the case for a vulnerable kid, right? Mm-hmm. Or or an yeah. infant, like not feeling okay, needing, having emotions that are troubling, that are disorienting, needing the regulation, the care, the back and forth from a person who is regulated and okay so that the emotions become tolerable and integratable and the kid gets, the child gets his or her balance back. Um, when that doesn't happen, that's the genesis of shame in my view. 
as opposed to that the genesis of shame is when an adult person shames a child. Okay. That that can be a kind of misattunement, but there are all kinds of other misattunements. For example, if a child is upset and a parent is just too distracted, um, not available for one reason or another, uh, to be able to respond or is upset by the child's upset and needs to shut it down because it stirs Mm. something in them, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. For all kinds of reasons, parents can miss the attunement that the child needs in order to have their emotions regulated and integrated and make sense, for their emotional selves to make sense to them. And then the kid's emotional selves don't make sense, and their emotional needs turn into something that just causes them trouble. But now we're going to freak out all the listeners because we've all done this. At some point, we've all said, just a minute, or I'm busy, or, you know, I mean, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. What you're asking is, what you're asking is, (laughs) because the next next thing to say is, that does happen. Ruptures, misunderstandings, misattunements happen all the time between adult human beings and also between parents and children. And... The shame doesn't start to accrue until it's a over and over again pattern when the misattunements, the misunderstandings are not repaired. The right? constant dismissals, the uh, not not really listening to the child. That's what you're talking about, a, a, a constant, not right. just a one-off. That's right. A constant. And also a constant, it doesn't even have to be enacted so much as perhaps a a constant fear on the parent's part of emotion, for example, right? That a parent just is kind of not able to be in that space with with the child, right? So it can be sort of uh, through through language, but it can also be the opposite where it's, they're just, a child might be ignored or... um, uh, the parent basic. just doesn't get what's going on. Oh, okay. It doesn't. It doesn't even have to be as, as, you know, somebody doing something to someone as ignored, right? Yeah. Just, just a parent who doesn't, a caregiver, a close caregiver, who is helping to construct that child's sense of self, who just isn't able to understand the emotional language of that particular child who can't be there for one reason or another. So is shame a normal response? Is it is it a, a natural response? Does everybody feel shame? There are kind of two tracks here. There's the genesis of chronic shame, which is what I'm talking about now, which is consistent again and again misattunement, misrecognition of who a child is in their emotional self, what they're trying to communicate Uh of their emotions, and that happening again and again. And I think a lot of us experience some of that. And then there's also, so that's an answer yes to your question. Uh, Okay. It does does happen, you know, it's, and in, in moderate amounts, it can be worked through. And then there's this other kind of track of shame say you have um, a parent-child relationship that is really pretty secure 
And then, you know, there are some misses, but lots of the misses get repaired. Um, And so a child feels pretty much like I'm understood and accepted in my emotional self for who I am, for what I feel and what I want and what makes me upset and so forth. And then, so here's this child, six years old, playing with little brother and wax his little brother, right? And dad says, that is not okay. Right. And that is a shame moment. And it's an, an instance of, a minor instance, but common instance of the, the socializing kind of nature of shame mm-hmm. that, you know, works in larger contexts too. But it only works when there's a path back, right? So you hear, I hear my dad say, that's not okay. I feel the break with him. That doesn't feel good to me. I want to get back in connection with him. So... I share my toy with my little brother. And my dad says, hey, that's great. And I'm okay again. There was right. a way back, right? Right. So there that was a way shame, back, yeah. So that kind of shame is useful. You know, it's, this is very much a sidebar, but it's interesting to think about how in our societies we use shaming and uh, imprisonment and penal situations in which supposedly that's supposed to help people get better, but there has to be a way back there too in that large Mm -hmm. scheme of things. Mm -hmm. Just the same as for a child, there needs to be a way back where you did something for which you can feel guilt and shame. I don't like who I was in that moment or that I don't want to be that in that moment. And you are welcomed back. So it's like there's a break, but then there's a a coming back, there's a... Uh, we, you use the word repair. It's it's just that that it's sort of like um, what, what's the word? It's like somehow that's you're making up, you're making up again, genuinely making up. That's right. And, and carrying on, and so and so the child learns that there's certain standards, certain things you don't do. Hmm. Right. It's a very okay. important skill. It's a very important skill to have as an adult to be able to sometimes feel ashamed of yourself, and to be able to find your way back to whatever kind of reparation you might need to make in the world, but back to a sense of a good person. And for some people, what you're saying is they can't do that. They can't dig their way out of it because of... Well, there's a crossover. Yeah, sorry. Go on. No, go on. There's a crossover. There's a crossover here. So if you have a parent who's trying to kind of teach a child like that but there isn't that fundamental sense of I'm okay my emotions are understood here in my needs and desires if there's a propensity to chronic shame chronic kind of misattunement already then if that child is uh, punished or you know told that's not okay it's going to be harder for that child to find their way back right Mm -hmm. And that stays on to right. Stays with them for uh, until into adulthood. It doesn't just go away on its own. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so there is a useful part. There is a useful part to shame, and and yet and yet there's a. It seems like it's a very fine line. So for for parents listening. Mm-hmm. What what's the sort of the message for them? Because I think well, I'm a parent too. I, mm-hmm. the, I can guarantee I have shamed my children, guaranteed. 
right. not intentionally, not to harm them, but just because things happen. You know, what's the message for parents? I don't want them to all go feeling that they've got to tippy-toe around this whole subject and, um, and develop chronic shame in their children. Yes, that would be the worst takeaway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you want resilient enough kinds of relationships yes. that have that have that have built into them the capacity for rupture and repair. To hear, I don't like that. When you do that, I feel this way, or that's not okay. And to be able to to weave that into a whole sense of self, a sense of self that's not split into good or bad, that on any given day I have to be good or bad, or I am seen as good or bad, that I am whole and I can be corrected. And my parents live in a world where they too can make mistakes. So should, for example, they shame me and then they feel bad about that, they could say they're sorry, right? Oh, okay. And yeah. so you get to see that modeled as well, that people don't have to be perfect, and the message came ac- comes across is for the child of parents who can re- do this repairing is I am still loved. Yeah, I made a mistake, but my parent I know my parents love me. Absolutely. So there's there's two messages going on that what I what when I hit my brother that's that's not acceptable, yeah. but it doesn't change the love that my my family my parents have for me. That's right. So these both mm-hmm. are required. Right. Whereas okay. in the case of chronic shame developing, it's always a wonder under there. Do my parents really love me? Do my parents really see me? Do, do, do they really get me? Or are, do I have to hide who I am? These feelings that I have that they can't kind of bear to be with, does that make, do they make me bad? These needs that I have... These emotional needs that I have, not a child, not that a child thinks that sort of consciously, but no. it's a feeling, right? Do, do those make me bad? And then that sort of feeling about that possible badness, it, 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 it kind of lurks and it mm-hmm. kind of undermines the child's confidence that, hey, I'm, I'm just fine the way I am. And sometimes I make a mistake, but they still love me. Right, that's that's the key. That's the key takeaway. That's so important for the listeners. Mm. So you use the word relational. Can you speak to that? And and uh, you said that it was that it you very convinced that it's a relational phenomena. Can you can you uh, expand on that a little bit more? Hmm. That shame is a relational phenomenon. Yeah. Okay, so when I think in my practice with people who come to see me who struggle with shame, they will often come in and say, I feel like shit today. I feel just like loathsome, like scum of the earth. And I've learned that one of the things that they will resist because they believe this is all about me, but one of the really helpful things to do is to say, okay, let's talk about what's happened to you between you and other people people close to you, like your kids, your wife, your boss, what's happened in the last few days? And, you know, as people come to trust me, they go, oh, yeah. And then we think. And then there was this misunderstanding between a partner and them. And shame-prone people, people who struggle with chronic shame, well, it's a default position that if there's something wrong in a relationship – it must be something wrong with me. 
and it spirals into that place of, okay, there was something wrong with me there then. There's always something wrong with me. I am worthless. I am whatever their version of shame is, ugly or, or awkward or um, very many words for it. But So that's, it's not – So that's yeah. one way, yeah. I'm trying to answer your question, right? No, it's great. How is shame great, relational? Yeah. 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 So it doesn't just, it's, I love that you, you go straight to the, the context in which, so you, you don't just go to them individually, but what has gone on between you and someone else that has awakened this, um, awakened this sense of, of, of not being lovable or disgusting or whatever. And, and so it, it's this is from this is from early childhood. This stuff starts. Is that, that that's what you're saying? It's early on, and yet as here we've got these grown ups coming into your office, that, and this stuff is still coming up, and, uh, and it's been it, there all their lives in one form and another, and it's been manifested at different times in their lives in different ways. Adolescents who. Are, who struggle with a lot of shame will often hang it on their on their sexuality, on their competence, on their looks, on their body shape and size, and uh, I mean adults do that too. But it's 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 very easy to mistake the the um, the hooks that chronic shame gets hung on. For it's it's e- it's easy to think oh that's the thing. If we can help that person feel better about their sexual orientation or their competence or intelligence, or how they look and feel in their body, that will ease the shame. But it doesn't if the story is that they have come into adolescence from childhood, from relationships, formative relationships that have left them feeling, um, somewhere inside of me, there's this place where I need to be known and it's an icky place. Okay, this is interesting. So a teenager comes to you or to therapy for, um, let's say, eating an eating disorder. Mm. It's not about the eating disorder. Is that what you're saying? There's, it's, there's this underlying, it, you'd work with the shame and not the eating disorder? Well, I would work with the eating disorder. Oh, you would? Especially, okay. Yeah, especially with an adolescent. You have to address the problem where it is. But I would okay. hold in mind the, the likelihood of the other. I don't work with adolescents very much, if at all. I, I work mostly with adults. Mm-hmm. Um, with adolescents, you need to be with them in real time with whatever the issues are. And with many adults, you need that too, but adults are often curious about, they've lived with enough kind of manifestations of shame over their lifetime, they know there's something else going on here. Yeah. And, and then I'm happy to, to join with them in searching for that too, while also wanting to help them deal with the, you know, the, the here and now present trouble in their lives. I don't want to dismiss that on the account, uh, on, with the idea that, oh, well, that's not really what help you want i mean that's kind of shaming them all over again right in in the way in the way that their parents did like they're trying to say here's my trouble and parent can't hear it parent has another idea going from the outside in right you know everybody needs to be understood from the inside out in the moment that they're trying to say what they're trying to say right whatever it is you they bring to you you're not going to sort of uh, and so um 
this is this is fascinating. So you you've always got a lens, a shame lens on you as a therapist. You've always got this lens of looking at what at the underlying sort of. Uh, it feels to me like an, uh, rivers under under mm-hmm. the ground or something. You know that they, yeah. they're always there. Yeah. And so at some point you would address it directly. You actually say that? Do you use the word shame? I'm careful about that because, mm-hmm. as we said at the very beginning, often people are ashamed of their shame, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I always go at my client's pace and with their agenda. But when somebody sort of hits a wall again and again of, I feel so awful about myself, I might say, you know, there's a name for that. Or I have an idea about why this keeps coming up no matter how many ways that you've tried to make it better mm-hmm. through whatever they've tried. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I will do a little sort of teaching, psychoeducation around, I think, about what happens to people and how they get to feel this way in this way and see if they want to join me in that. And if they do, then then we go. So so other words could be used instead of shame. Exactly. And you could still still get to the same. They, don't, they all point to roads lead to Rome or whatever the saying is. There's something um, really good about giving shame light and air. That's one of the chapters mm-hmm. in my book, to let it see the light, to let it be spoken. When people can begin to speak about it and allow that it's a thing that, mm-hmm. and get that little bit of distance, right? Like. Mm-hmm. If you've lived your whole life thinking there's something terribly wrong with you and you can't even articulate what it is and you have to hide it, but then it can be this thing and you can look at it and say, oh, that's my shame. There's relief in that, right? Yeah, yeah. And then to begin yeah. to understand that it's, that it's not something that is actually wrong with you. That's the feeling, but something happened last week or when you were a child or both, yeah. right? That's even more relief. And gives hope that thing, they can change. And that's yes. the key, isn't it? It is. That this isn't a life sentence. Right. And so with support, um, you don't have to go back necessarily, do you? Would you go back and look at, look at their history? I don't push people to do that. No. I, no. I welcome that. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it, it is a, a big relief to people to be able to see that something went wrong between them and their parents without blaming their parents, right? Right. right. That doesn't have to happen. The fact that that emotional connection didn't happen between you and your parent, Gabor Mate has a great story from himself where he says, my mother loved me, I know she loved me, but she couldn't attune to me because there was a Holocaust on and we were right. in Warsaw, Right. Right. Yeah. Pat, this is so interesting. We, we're going to go to break now, okay. um, but we'll be back. And I, I, I want to ask you about, I know Gabor Mate, I invited him on the show. He oh. make it. But if you could speak um, around addictions, uh, that would be fantastic. And, and, and how that's attached to shame and, and, and trauma, that would be fantastic. So okay. let's go to break now and um, we'll be back in a few minutes. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com If you want to know more about how to work with children and adults to transform shame, depression, loss, and anxiety 
Order Dr. DeLittle's book, Where Words Can't Reach, Neuroscience and the Satire Model in the Sand Tray. The book is available online from Dr. DeLittle's website, wherewordscannotreach.com. Dr. DeLittle also conducts workshops and can come to your workplace or organization. If you wish to have Dr. DeLittle come and do a two-day workshop on an introduction to neuroscience and satire in the sand tray, please contact her at mdelittle at gmail.com. Mental illness affects more people than you might think. Now there's a program that showcases support resources, how many people in our society view mental illness, and how the culture surrounding it is changing. Listen for We Are Hope with co-founder and host Sean Perry. Mental health is being seen as a public health crisis, and we want to help, support, and listen. You'll hear the discussions and conversations that need to happen. Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Where Words Can't Reach, shedding light on our dark side. We'd love to hear from you with any stories, suggestions, or questions by sending an email to mthelittle at gmail.com. Here again is Dr. Madeline DeLittle. Welcome back to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on Our Dark Side. Um, my guest today is Pat DeYoung, and she's talking to us about different kinds of shame. And before the break, we were just going to start talking about shame, trauma, and the connection with addictions, and and uh, we're going to delve into that for a couple of minutes. So, Pat, over to you. Can you can you speak to this? Well, sort of one one of those things at a time. Okay. Um, the re- the relationship of of chronic shame to trauma. Usually, when people speak of trauma, they're thinking about overt, sort of mm, abusive things that are done to kids or to human beings in general. And one of the things that's important in my work and in my teaching is to, on the one hand, really honor the kinds of shame responses that ha- that happen as a result of overt and terrible trauma. That the humiliation and the sort of intentional traumatization does lead to strong experiences of shame. Mm. But then I want to add to that that there are all kinds of people in my practice and in the world and myself and friends included who carry around a lot of trauma, chronic shame and who have not been traumatized in that way. Mm. So for me, I make the link between chronic shame and relational trauma. That the kind of misattunement, misrecognition, the repetition of that is a developmental, a relational trauma story. And it is also the case that when somebody has been overtly traumatized in an ongoing way, leading to sort of to complex PTSD, post-traumatic stress, for example, that within that there will also be relational trauma. 
right? A parent who is abusive to you is also incapable of understanding what you're feeling, or they wouldn't be in that moment mm-hmm. abusive, right? So the the interesting thing is that the the place of shame is so similar between people who've suffered overt abuse and people who haven't that there there has to be a a, a constant kind of mm. factor and and the constant factor i believe is the kind of relational trauma that we've been talking about mm. and to move over to your next to the next part of the question what where do addictions fit in this story mm. um the experience of living with chronic shame is painful and stressful. Sort of having to worry all the time, is somebody going to find out what a ugly, awkward, whatever kind of person I am? Will my persona hold? Will I be able to get away with this thing that I do in the world that looks like I'm on top of things? Um, Or for people who can't even do that, just living with the the shame that's not as well disguised and hidden, it is very stressful, very anxiety-inducing, very unpleasant. So why wouldn't you do something or drink something or smoke something that makes you feel better, right? Makes sense, the addiction yes. is The addiction is a self-medication, right? Right. I don't want to feel that way, so I will do something that makes me feel different, and it works, but then it also messes with your life and often makes you feel worse about yourself. The shame intensifies, right? Yes. And then you've got to do more of the same in order to numb that out. So, Fascinating. That's, that's Fascinating. So it's a, a quick fix. Yeah. To because because as you say there's you can't even articulate it in some yes. cases when especially when you've got very successful people mm-hmm. uh, and a much like and if mm-hmm, and a much more reliable fix than people are if you're if you suffer from chronic shame you're scared of people right mm-hmm. you're you're scared of of the of being known in your shame place you've got to hide that mm-hmm. and so you're not going to get your relief there which is what we would like that hope that we would hope and like that people learn to do through the process of therapy but instead you're going to get your relief where it feels much safer where you're in control whoa this is complex eh? and and it sounds like you've this your tone was lovely it was compassionate there was some compassion there for folks who do uh, revert to those kind of behaviors in order to quell that un- dis- the unease, I wouldn't say yes. dis-ease, but the unease mm-hmm. that they have. And so f- temporarily it feels better. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Makes absolute sense. So we don't, t- tell me more about um, why we – why it's so difficult to access this? What what is it that's going on? Why is it? How does it get hidden? How does shame mm. get hidden um, in relationships? You know, it belongs it's not to. Mm, so, yeah, go on. Go so on. let me start by saying that it belongs to a part of us that's not so logical or linear. In my book, I talk about um, that shame is a right brain phenomenon, and all I mean by that is 
you know, if you think about human development again, the little kids are infants, toddlers, small children are engaging with other people a long time before there's logic. A long time they can do before they can do that thing of use your words, right? But there's lots there's lots of back and forth. Yes. There's lots yes. of and babies, shown. you see it. Yeah. Yeah. And and being yeah. shown who you are to another mm-hmm. person, being mm-hmm. responded to in a way that makes you feel this way or that way. And here mm-hmm. are the limits of who I can be in the world. So much of that is in place before the sort of logical, linear way of thinking. Mm-hmm. comes the into language base too because that's the, language doesn't come to that's the child, right what, 18 months and, or so mm-hmm. and you know i depend a lot in this right brain thinking uh, on the the theory of alan shore and um and his his point uh always is that this right brain the right hemisphere of our brain is where our emotional self lives for the rest of our lives Mm. and if we are lucky that emotional self has been in good connection with the people around us so it has had a chance to develop into a coherent kind of sense of self that isn't in language, it can be translated into language, the left brain and the right brain come together in optimal development so that you can have words about what you feel. You can have concepts for what goes da- goes on deep inside of you. Mm-hmm. But that, that deep place, that implicit relational knowing place, which is I know how to be with others like this because this is what I learned in ways that didn't go through my left brain, right? That place is with us for life. And it is... Hard to think about, hard to access, hard to talk about. And, you know, the kind of therapy, when, when, you're, when you're stuck and dissociated and unhappy in that place, you need a kind of therapy or a kind of relationship with another human being, yes. therapist or no, where that place gets met, right? Where you get met in that place, where there's a right brain to right brain connection. So, you know, for therapists who want to practice in this way, presence is everything. Like, I am listening to you, I am seeing you, I am getting you, I am, I am wanting to know who you are, and we have to do it some by words because we're grown-ups here. It's a talk therapy, but the music underneath the words is mm-hmm. probably the most important thing that's happening in a therapy that's right brain to right brain. So they get a new experience of being seen differently. Yes, a new experience mm. of what's possible mm. between two human beings, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm a sand tray therapist, and uh, so I, li- I live in the right brain. Right. So I, I, I get what you're talking about, and this, but this might be new for um, for for the listeners to understand, and you know that. So much of, um, of of communication is not actually in words, and, and maybe you want to speak to that a bit more around how there's so much more that to to be aware of other than just what what people are saying. Hmm. I think if listeners just think for a moment about who they feel good with, right? Lovely. If they spend time with this person, they feel good. 
they spend time with that person, they don't feel so good. And it's not about what they talk about, right? It's about how they feel connected with, how they feel the other person present with them, how they feel held, nurtured, excited, engaged with, right? That kind of energy. Yeah, yeah, to, to really pay attention to that. Because we we know that we we do it intuitively. We go exactly and, right. Mm. We seek out people that we like. We hang out with them, and we we are not drawn to people that that doesn't fit for us. So yeah, it's done automatically. But what you're saying is to be more conscious, more conscious of what's going on in your body. What's what your gut? What's your gut telling you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen. Mm. Listen and the to sad part is, is that for people who suffer with chronic shame, they don't actually have that sense of, oh, I have the right to find that for myself, right? They, they often will struggle in relationships that don't feel great to them because relationships don't feel great to them. They, 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 they have to get lucky enough mm-hmm. to have that different experience before they realize, oh, oh. I can be in this music with another person. Oh. I can I can know and be known. Many, many people who struggle with chronic shame lack that experience and don't even know it, right? So you're saying they perpetuate the same responses mm-hmm. from people? Well, and I wouldn't call it their doing. They don't they don't perpetuate, but they don't if it doesn't feel good, they don't know enough to get out. Right? Right, so that that moves us into relationships in terms of intimate relationships, mm. and how perhaps choice of partners is they can't get out. Is, is that what we're talking about? That's one place where it would show up, I think. Yeah, mm. and and where else might it might it oh, show up? In all up? kinds of relationships, in relationships at work with uh, a boss who is. Who, who stimulates that kind of shame and something's wrong with me kind of thing, but that's just kind of par for the course. Mm-hmm. Or um, in friendships where there's a lot of you know, thinking of uh, clients who talk about that I'm always taking care of my friends and nobody's there for me, right? That, oh, that yes. sort of pattern, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And not understanding that that's a way that they learn to have some kind of connection, even though they couldn't have that really being with and being known themselves kind of right. connection. More yeah. of a mutual, a mutual connection. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if someone wants to, um, if our listeners want to get to the root of the, perhaps, if they, if as listening to this, they're going, whoa, maybe, maybe that's what's going on for me. Mm-hmm. What would, they, what are you suggesting that? they look for what are, what are the patterns that they might want to explore in their day-to-day experience well yeah sort of the family patterns what would they look, look what would they look for what was if they were to be retrospective and, and look at what went on in their family okay yeah the first thing I would look for is the first question I would ask is how much room was there in your family for People, the, the technical term is how much intersubjective space was there, relational, but it's like conversational space, conversations about, I feel this way, how do you feel? Mm. Or um, 
this happened and I had this response to it. Or um, that emotions are not frightening, that it doesn't have to be shut down. But at the same time, that emotions aren't chaotic, that there is, you know, some kind of, okay, if you feel that way, let's talk about it. How could we make things different so that feelings could change? That there's space for right brain emotional relational conversations in families that aren't scary and that get somewhere, right? That have some meaning. That, That would be... For people to think, what well, did that happen in my family? And so often people will say, oh, no. Now, there wasn't, our emotions were shut down, or the only time anybody had a feeling was when they were going to yell at somebody else, or um, conversations didn't happen much mm. about who are you and who am I. We had lots of conversations about politics or about, you know, world events or whatever, but the real more personal stuff didn't get talked about. I love that you said. Um, basically, how much were you were you recognized? How much space was given to you? How much you were heard? And I think if our listeners can take that away, because we're going back to what you said just now. That I think we assume that if you haven't had a big trauma, the capital T, then there should there shouldn't be anything wrong with you. That's right. You should you be shouldn't okay. Feel, you should not feel this bad about yourself. Right. Your parents loved you, and yeah, they right. meant the best. And yeah. yes, nothing bad happened to you, so so you're making this up, right? right. What the, mm-hmm. uh, you think you've got problems, mm-hmm. and and in fact, what you're saying is much more subtle, much more mm-hmm. subtle than that in families where, yeah, if you say they're doing the best they can, and they think that perhaps education is the most important thing, or getting accolades in sports is the most important thing and in that process somehow the the sense of personhood of the child gets missed Mm. that's that's what you're saying i'm saying that it's also interesting that um a parent can be over invested in a gifted child for example when it's actually all about the parent right and the child kind of feels like I'm not really being seen here either because it's about you feeling good because of my accomplishments. Right? Oh, yes. yes. And, so the, and so the moments of achievement feel so, so fraught for a kid who's there because in the moment, they, they, there's something that they want from the moment. But at the same time, the mirror of the parents' eyes they're looking at, it's not those that it's not a mirror of them. It's the parent who wanted that thing. Anyway, that's... No, that's that, fascinating. I, I, I tell uh, my families, I say, I, I was a good parent before I had children. Because <laughs> I knew that, I, I, you know, I've been a teacher, I've been a therapist, and yet this is such a delicate role that we play as parents. And yeah. uh, I, I don't want the listeners to go away thinking that this is just... You know that every 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 uh, step is like walking on eggshells, but there there is it is tender. It's a very tender role, very important role we play. A very fine balance. What you're saying is to really it's it, to recognize the child mostly for who they are, not what they achieve, mm-hmm. not what they're accomplishing or not accomplishing, but just simply who they are. And um, 
And, and, yeah. and there's something else I want to say for anxious parents, right? That the best thing that you can do to kind of prevent your child from having to struggle with too much shame is to get as solid as you can in yourself. Mm-hmm. Is to look at your own shame patterns um, and do what you need to do to to not need your child, for example, to make you feel better about yourself. To not have to worry so much about am I a good parent or not. Mm-hmm. That, that's a short. That's a sort of a, a shamey question in itself, right? To have some confidence that if you are solid in yourself, you're going to be able to see that child for who they are, for their little personhood. That's all it takes. That's what we're talking about, right? In some ways, the harder you work to do it right, the more you're in your own shame kind of story, right? Your own Mm -hmm. fear of making mistakes and needing to be the perfect parent. No, fear of making mistakes and having to be perfect that belongs to a shame script. And and so what about, uh, got me thinking here, what's the best protection against, uh, you know, a, an antidote for shame? I mean, that's, is that a weird question? But is there an antidote for shame? Is there a, how do we sure. move beyond this? Well, I think I've been talking about it in that, From the very beginning, the antidote for shame is actual connectedness, emotion to one person's emotional self to another person's emotional self. So if you're asking from the point of view of an adult who goes, wow, I think I've got a lot of shame in my system. What can I do about it? Um, the, The short form answer is find somebody, find some people with whom you can have meaningful emotional connection in relationship. Mm-hmm. And if that's kind of too <laughs> a bridge too far, too hard for you at this place in your life, because people still scare you and you feel like the, the shame is just too much, then, you know, take a first run at it with the therapist. Be with that person. Right, right. You can see you in that way and then you can kind of transfer that experience over to some kind of trust that maybe it could be in the world too and and uh, and who who is the therapist hopefully is accepting non-judgmental yes. um is providing them with what they didn't ha- what they didn't have and so um like we said before they get a sense of of of, of being reflected in a different way than they have been Mm-hmm. In the in their past, so they get to experience themselves differently. Well, um, I I just want to thank you a, a, a lot here, and I I hope that um, you would be able people will be able to get your book and uh, be able to buy it. Is it is it available on Amazon, Pat? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is, is it for therapists, or would you say, or both for therapists, or for 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 pu- public? Folks, or it's interesting. I've gotten a lot of emails back uh, in my box about this book, and I'd say it's split about half and half. That a number oh, really? of therapists have written me to say, but then the therapists usually say, "Oh, not 
so much that this is so helpful in my practice. Well, they do say that, but first they say, oh, wow, this struck me personally. This, mm. is, this is the stuff that I struggle with, and I've been, and I've been trying to, to know how to be with clients about this stuff, too, and this helps me personally, and it helps me in my work. And I've gotten various emails from people in different places in their lives to say, I've been trying to understand and feel this, uh, feel better about this, or mm, it's just so helpful to have some language for what's been troubling me for so long. Yeah. Wonderful. We're going to close in a minute, but I just I want to grab this last couple of minutes with you. Is this a cultural thing or is this a universe? Is shame universal? I think shame works differently in different cultures, mm. um, as the especially around the the socialization aspect of shame, that sort of adaptive shame that we talked about way at the beginning of of the hour. Um, I don't know because I haven't done a cross-cultural kind of study, and I don't know of any that are there. But I think that whatever attunement to a child looks like in any given culture, that there are ways that support a growing self, even if the self is not as individualized as it is in our Western culture, right? Um, There are better and not as good ways to do that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, it feels to me like it's a human condition and it's manifest in different ways in, in different, amplified more in certain cultures. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly as I, as I teach and travel around the world and do my teaching that some cultures are very much steeped in shame. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's to some point it's motivating. It's to a point it's motivating, mm-hmm. but there's a huge cost. Mm-hmm. That's that's my anecdotal experience. Right. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it would be interesting to to look at any research that's been done in terms of cross cultural um, as, that that aspect. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to li- give you the last word here, Pat. Uh, is there anything else that you want to, to repeat or to leave with the the, re- the listeners that uh, uh, that uh, you would like to um, say to them? Hmm. I think if someone is listening and is um, sort of resonating or reverberating <laughs> with some feeling of oh, this is something. That, that I know from the inside mm. and, and what could I do today and tomorrow about that I would say my advice would be to to go to the relationships in your life that feel the safest and to be more open in those relationships to share more of who you are and invite the other person to share more of who they are and to allow some of your sense of even, I don't know what the word is exactly, but ick about me, show just a little bit. Mm. To push past your fear of being misunderstood and hurt, to believe that maybe it could be different now. Mm. To have some sense that some of this is programmed into you from a long time ago, and it's within your power, whether you do it in therapy or with other people, to try to have a different experience. Mm. 
it's so it's that courage to that's right to show up in in, mm. in warts and all as they say or Brenny Brown says the courage to be vulnerable to show up and to mm-hmm. to be authentic Mm-hmm. And on that note, Pat, thank you so much for this uh, this this uh, interview at this show. It's been absolutely fascinating, and uh, hopefully, we're going to get you back another time. Um, I want to, to talk to the listeners to remind them to tune in next week to hear more about uh, shedding light on our dark side. And if you have any questions uh, you want, that you want answered, you can uh, email me at mdelittle at gmail.com. It's up here on the website. And Pat, do you? have uh, an, an email address there that people could connect with I have a website that is patdeyoung.com and you there can we go. contact me there that's right that's be perfect again Pat thank you so much well thank you it's been a real pleasure thank you mm-hmm. bye now bye bye thank you for listening this week to where words can't reach Shedding Light on Our Dark Side with Dr. Madeline DeLittle. Please join us for another edition of the program next Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again next week.